0: The Israelites have crossed the Red Sea. They are beginning their journey uh, through the wilderness, leading ultimately to the Promised Land. So Exodus 16, verse 1, The whole Israelite community set out from Elam, came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, the fifteenth day, the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron, The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you'll eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until the morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until the morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, You'll not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is one-tenth of an ephah. If you had to use the same staple food for 40 years, how well would you cope? This is possibly a question more for the ladies than for the men. How soon would the recipes run out? After you'd had boiled manna, fried manna, poached manna, manna surprise, manna whatever, How long could you keep going before folk were becoming a little bit bored with your cooking? And that was the challenge that faced the Israelites less than two months into their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. The Lord provided manna, in how many ways could it be prepared? Of course, at this stage, as far as the Israelites were concerned, they were on a journey that was going to take them at most a few months, even on the long route, uh, down around Sinai and up to Canaan. Nobody at that point expected forty years of this way of life. So this evening we're looking at chapter 16 of Exodus. We're giving the study this evening, the title Bread. From heaven. Bread from heaven. A number of things we see as we look at this chapter. The first one, of course, that we encounter as we read Exodus sixteen is the grumbling of the Israelites. Not the first time, and it certainly will not be the last. Something we're going to encounter regularly in the record of the exodus journey the grumbling of the israelites there'd been a previous occasion we didn't read uh, the verses at the end of chapter 15 but there three days after they crossed the red sea only three days the people grumbled against moses chapter 15 and verse 24. And less than two months later, they're in the desert of sin. Uh, Sin, of course, there's nothing to do with iniquity. Sin's closely related to the word for Sinai. It's just a name for the desert. They're in the desert. Food is possibly beginning to run low. Uh, They're feeling things are getting a bit tight. Uh, And so, verse 2, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. It's not just one or two of them. They're all grumbling and complaining and of course ultimately it's not against Moses and Aaron that they're complaining it's pointed out in verse 8 the real target for the grumbling is God and it's against God they're complaining and what God has done or hasn't done for them less than two months since he brought them out of Egypt led them across the Red Sea and they're complaining Again and again, in the Exodus record, you will see and you'll hear the Israelites grumbling. In a sense, they're never satisfied. And Moses, at times, was driven almost to distraction by them. In fact, uh, ultimately, Moses lost his temper the second time that water was produced from the rock. And he ended up not entering the promised land on that account And there, the Israelites grumbling, painting as bleak a picture of the present as possible. Things are awful. And idealizing the past. And isn't that what people do when they're discontented? The good old days. And it was so much better then. And you listen to them. They'd pots of meat, they'd all the food we wanted. How wonderful. Except they're conveniently forgetting the fact they were slaves who are being worked to death, whose firstborn males were being killed. But no, that's conveniently forgotten. And all they think of is how much food we used to have. And again, as so often happens, their leaders are misrepresented. Their motives are misrepresented. You have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death, firstly. They know perfectly well Moses and Aaron are not bringing the people out to kill them, but that doesn't stop them saying that. When people are in that mindset and that grumbling and complaining, then everything is painted in the worst possible colours. The past is idealised. It used to be great, and everything in the present is awful. And you can see just how human the Israelites are. They forget what God has done for them. And they're putting their focus on their present circumstances. And this is instructive. And this is something that we need to take note of. They've taken their eyes off the Lord who has done such great things for them just a very short time before. And instead of focusing on him, they're focusing on their circumstances. And it is a very quick decline. It's a matter of weeks, and it's not even the first time. It only took them three days out from Egypt before they were starting to complain. And surely there's a warning to God's people in every age. That at times we're not so very different from the Israelites. They may have lived thousands of years ago, but they're people just like us. And we can identify with them, with their mistakes, and with their outlook. Aren't there the times when perhaps things are difficult, when things are a struggle? And rather than focusing on God and on His promises, we become wrapped up in our circumstances. Rather than trusting God's provision and God's promises to us, we become preoccupied with the difficulties of the struggles or the hard times we're going through. We were exhorted and we're told, in fact, by Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. And that should characterise the Lord's people. Even in the circumstances we find ourselves in at present with the increasing threat of disease and the panic, it's the only word for it, around us and so many people. How as Christians do we respond? Well, we're not naive. We wash our hands. We take sensible precautions, I trust. We're not for a moment saying, because I'm a Christian, nothing can happen to me. the evidence points the other way, the first doctor to identify coronavirus and flag up its existence was a Christian, and he died. So just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you'll not get sick, that you might not even die. But our eyes fixed on the Lord, who is sovereign in these circumstances and who's working out his purpose, even if we understand very little of it. And if we keep our focus on the Lord, we're delivered from the panic and the folly of so many around us, things that are done and the things that are said that are so foolish. And as Christians, we have a hope in the Lord that will bring us through whatever the trial happens to be. But we are to take the Lord at his word. Isn't this the Lord who's promised us? Hebrews thirteen five, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Well, that doesn't stop. When some particular difficulty or challenge comes along, and as it where the promise is switched off. The promise is as real today as it ever has been or ever will be. But do we trust God? to provide whatever we need for health, for sickness or worse. When we focus on our circumstances we so easily fall into the outlook of the Israelites of grumbling and why does God let this happen? Does God love me because my circumstances are difficult and I've got problems and struggles and we can slip into that grumbling kind of outlook and it's a spirit uh, that, that is deeply damaging for our Christian life. When we start to grumble against God and complain about what he's done or what he hasn't done, rather than focusing on his promises and his grace and his goodness to us, we can learn from the Israelites and their grumbling attitude, focused on circumstances rather than on God and what God has done for them. The grumbling of the Israelites. But then, secondly, we see the provision of the Lord. The provision of the Lord. How does God respond? And God responds very generously and very graciously to these people. There will be times later in the Exodus when grumbling will be met with something a great deal more severe than this. But as it were, God is being very gentle. With these people at the early stage of the Exodus. There's no punishment upon Israel at this point. Rather, verse 4, God says, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And and there is a, a stress on the abundance of the provision that God is making. All the bread you want is generous, gracious a reflection and a contrast perhaps to what the Israelites were grumbling. We had all the food we wanted and God says, I'll give you all the bread you want. I'll supply what you need. You'll be filled with bread, verse 12. There will be no complaints that God wasn't giving them enough, that he was keeping them on short rations. This is a God who provides richly for his people, not drip, drip of the minimum, but raining down the bread, filling them with food. And isn't that a basic principle of how God deals with his people? That he provides abundantly and richly for his people. We sing in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. That is not saying that God will give us everything our hearts desire. We can think of whatever we want and God will give it to us. Of course not. It's within the limits of what is for God's glory and what is for our best interests. Within that, God will supply abundantly and richly. And we can be confident of that. And that's how he deals with the Israelites for their... Grumbling and their ingratitude and their complaining. God is still so patient and so gracious. He provides the quail. Uh, verse 13, they have meat from these birds. And then verse 14, they have these thin flakes. It's almost it's difficult to describe exactly what this was like. And the Israelites don't know. They ask, What is it? Uh, and indeed, when uh, their, their words pass through the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Eventually, we get the word manna. Manna, this is what it's going to be called. And the needs of Israel will be fully met by this bread from heaven, this manna that God is supplying. And the stress all the way through is the Lord is the provider. There is certainly absolutely nothing Israel could do to provide manna, to provide food in the wilderness at all. It is clearly the work of God. It is, verse 15, the bread the Lord has given you. And as he gives it, there's a purpose in the giving of the manna. The goal, he tells them, he tells us, verse 12, you will know that I am the Lord your God. It'll be underlined as if it were not enough that God had parted the Red Sea and taken Israel across in dry land. Again, the Lord is demonstrating he is the Lord their God. He's feeding them, he's providing for them, he's caring for them. He's giving them everything that they need. And his provision is going to be accompanied by a revelation of his glory that's what we have in verse 10 the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud there was some kind of supernatural glow in the cloud but it was clear to everybody it's the glory of God and God is demonstrating he is a glorious God he is a mighty God he provides for his people when they cannot provide for themselves It all comes back to the Lord as the provider. As made clear to the Israelites. But it's as true for us as it is for the Israelites. The Lord provides for us in so many ways. He gives food and clothing and shelter and health and so many blessings. And we're to see God's glory in those provisions. Not just in the big things or the dramatic things, but in the everyday provision that God makes for us. It demonstrates his glory. And we ought to be constantly acknowledging his goodness and his grace. He doesn't owe us anything except wrath and judgment. And what he gives us graciously is abundant provision. So many of our needs are met. As always, of course, when we're looking at Exodus, we're thinking, how does this fit with the New Testament? Our question always isn't it, where's this going? And how does Exodus 16 and the giving of the manna tie into the New Testament and to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? And we discover how it does if we turn up John chapter 6. The first part of John 6 is the feeding of the 5,000. But then following on from the feeding of the 5,000, the people challenge Jesus to to show himself to be the equal of Moses. They challenge Jesus in verse 30 of John 6. What sign do you do? Moses gave us bread in the wilderness. What are you doing? This remembers after he's just fed 5,000 people sign do they want? Truth is, of course, they don't really want a sign. The challenge to Jesus, what sign do you do? Come on, show that you are greater than Moses who gave us bread in the wilderness. And then Jesus responds, it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. The true bread from heaven. And what is the true bread from heaven? And Jesus explains the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The true bread from heaven is a person. The true bread from heaven that fulfills what's depicted by the manna is Jesus himself. That's why he says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. So that is where the record in Exodus 16 is pointing us. It points us ultimately to the Messiah, who is himself the bread from heaven, the bread of God, the bread of salvation. He fulfills the manna it pointed to him as the one who gives not just physical life, but who gives eternal life. The God who provided manna for the bodies of the Israelites is the God who has provided the spiritual bread, provided his Son as the Savior of sinners. The physical lives of the Israelites were saved by the manna. The souls and the bodies ultimately of believers are saved by the one who's the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where Exodus 16 points us. And the fulfillment of the manna is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the bread of life. The God who gave the manna is the God who's given the bread of life in whom we are to believe if we are to be saved. And here is the provision of the Lord. We've had the grumbling of the Israelites. We have the provision of the Lord so abundant and so gracious. He owes these people nothing. He gives them manna. He owes us nothing. He gives us the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. Then thirdly, as we look at this chapter, we see the testing of the Israelites, the testing of the Israelites. Note how the Lord arranges the provision of the manna. God says in verse 4, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. He's going to give it in a very precise way. And the Israelites are to gather it According to God's instructions. And he's going to test their obedience and their commitment to him and his word in this way. Because you see, God gave manna for six days. And each day they were to gather enough for that day. There was to be no hoarding. That sounds contemporary, doesn't it? Enough for that day's needs. And then... On the day before the Sabbath, they were to gather for two days. Because on the Sabbath, there wouldn't be any manna. Two days supply just before the Sabbath. And it wouldn't rot the next day. Anything that was hoarded, rotted. Wouldn't that be interesting if so much that's being hoarded at the minute, the next morning had rotted? It might be a surprise for a few folk. But God determines how and when the manna will be given and collected. And Israel's responsibility is to obey God. Of course, some obeyed, others disobeyed. Some of them paid no attention to Moses, verse 20. And there'll be a few occasions when they pay no attention to Moses. And if they keep the manna to the next morning, it's rotten. When they gather for the Sabbath, maybe they thought the day before the Sabbath, one day will do, there'll be manna tomorrow. And they go out on Sabbath morning and there's nothing. And in a sense the Lord says, well I told you so. And so the test was would they obey God's command? And you can't circumvent it. They couldn't get around what God had said and what God was doing. They, They couldn't somehow manage to keep manna fresh a day late. God made sure it couldn't be kept. And equally well, if they went out on the Sabbath, there was no way there was going to be any manna there. God's testing them. As he had at Marah, at the end of chapter 15, he tested them. Will they obey his command? And that is the test with regard to the manna. Will they do what God tells them? The basic issue really, isn't it, is do they trust the Lord and recognize their dependence on him? Do they trust God? particularly for the Sabbath, do they trust God to provide for them, that there will be enough manna for two days when they go out the day before? Do they recognize their dependence on God for whatever they need? And as always, their response to God's command shows the condition of their heart. The actions flow from the attitude of their heart their attitude to God. And that's the test. What's in the hearts of these people? Do they trust God? Do they recognize they're dependent on him? And in different ways, God does test his people. He still does. He tests us not to provide information that he hasn't got. As if God didn't know things about us and had to test us to find out. He knows all things. And thankfully, God doesn't test his people with the aim of making them fail. That's not his goal. God tests us for our benefit so that we understand ourselves better. Our faith is strengthened as we obey God and see he keeps providing for us. So the tests that the Lord permits to come to us are to strengthen our faith and our dependence on him. They're not for God's benefit. They're for the benefit of his people. And that's why we can pray with the psalmist in Psalm 26 and verse 2. Test me, test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. And so that the Lord will show us how we are going on with Him, if there is sin, that He will show it to us, for us to confess and receive forgiveness, that we learn about ourselves. The tests of God help us to understand where we are spiritually. I can highlight issues that need to be dealt with by His grace and His forgiveness. The testing of the Israelites. For their benefit, the testing for the Lord's people, for our benefit, to learn about ourselves, to learn about our spiritual condition, and what issues need to be addressed, and perhaps forgiveness sought, the testing of the Israelites. One last thing that we note in the chapter, and that's the Sabbath of the Lord. The Sabbath of of the Lord, Because the Sabbath plays an important part in this chapter, doesn't it? Not just in relation to uh, the manna, but this is significant. No manna is to be sought on the Sabbath. It won't be given. Manna gathered the previous day doesn't rot. In the providence of God, it keeps until the next day. But notice how the Sabbath described. This is what is important. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. In other words, this is a day that God has given to be dedicated to him. God is to be honoured particularly on the Sabbath. It is a day of rest. But it's truly a day of rest Only when we are acknowledging the Lord and delighting in him, that makes it a day of rest. If we're not acknowledging God, then being off on the Sabbath is perhaps a day of idleness or a day to use for your own pleasure, but it isn't the true rest for which God has made the Sabbath. It's resting in the Lord. It's delighting in him. It's honoring him. Notice this is before the Ten Commandments are given. It's chapter 20 before the Ten Commandments are given with the Sabbath fourth commandment there. But the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. God rested at the end of the days of creation and the Sabbath is a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And the principle of the Sabbath, of course, is included in the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. Doesn't that tell us how important the Sabbath ought to be to God's people? It's in a list of ten rules that include things like murder and theft. And the Sabbath is there as well. You think to observe some Christians that there are only nine commandments actually. The Sabbath doesn't seem to figure in their thinking about God's spiritual and moral requirements. But it's there in The law, the one day in seven principle, a day that is to be regarded as holy, set apart for God with a focus on the Lord that we don't have time for in the busyness of other days. Yes, we I trust we read our Bibles, we give time to prayer, but we can't focus on the Lord and the other days in the way that we can and we should on the Sabbath day. It's to be a delight. That's sad that for some Christians the whole idea of the Sabbath is a burden. And all they can think of is the things you can't do that day. And what a long day it is. And how do you get through it? But for the Christian, it's a day for the Lord. A day to focus on him. Yes, there are responsibilities to be fulfilled. There is legitimate work of necessity and mercy to be done on the Sabbath. But the Lord is in our thoughts. It's a day to delight him. And it's in that sense that Jesus says in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man. How often that's been an excuse for doing whatever you like on the Sabbath day. That's not what the Lord means. It's made for man for his spiritual benefit, for a focus on his God, his Lord, his Savior. And then it's a delight. Then it's a day of opportunity and blessing. The Sabbath Of the Lord. In that context, there's no manna. There's no out busy gathering the manna, getting it in, and so on. It's a day to focus on the Lord and to glorify Him and delight in Him. It should be our concern, our prayer, that God gives us grace to find the Sabbath a delight and to focus on Him and all that we may be doing in that day. And to honour and to glorify him. What a gracious God here, you know, these grumbling Israelites. God could have snuffed them out in a moment, and yet graciously he gives them bread from heaven that points us forward to the bread of life, the Lord Jesus. The test is always do we take God at His word? Do we trust Him? Do we depend on Him for provision? And do we delight in the day in which we can focus on him and his kingdom?